This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Nisim Black, the great artist, entertainer, of course, as we are recording here on the holiday of Hanukkah, the word Nisim means miracles, and the entire Hanukkah holiday is all about miracles. And Nisim, how are you today? I'm amazing. I'm amazing, Bokashim. Thank you for asking. How are you? Doing wonderful. And uh, as I noted, the word Nisim means miracles. But as I also recall from the little bit I know about your story, Nisim was not always the name that you went by. Tell us a little bit about where you did come from and what your journey was like, what your especially early childhood was and, and where you kind of went from there. Yeah, Nisim was not my name always, but I, I grew up around a lot of drugs in a, in a very, very heavy uh, environment. I remember, you know, we were battled around by the FBI, maybe when I was eight years old, and I witnessed uh, a lot of people, drug abuse and different things like that growing up. Me and myself, I started smoking pot by the time I was nine years old. At the time I was 12 years old, I was already dealing with myself. So I just lived kind of fast and very early. I mean, safe to say, I still had like loving parents. I mean, in, in the same in the same degree that other people do, but it just it was a different world completely, and that love was reflected differently. This was in Seattle, Washington, South Seattle, Central District of Seattle, Washington. Earlier, then also we moved, then we moved to South Seattle, and I mean, this was just life. This is the way I thought life was. The first introduction to religion was Islam. My grandfather taught me Quran. I prayed with him five times a day. I went to the mosque with him as a kid. And then when I was about 13 years old, a friend of mine really encouraged me to come to this hip-hop program uh, that was happening at this place called the Union Gospel Mission. And I got really close to a lot of people there. And eventually I went to camp with them. And after this camp, it was like a missionary camp, um, I ended up becoming a Christian. And so that was sort of like, you know, the story, at least my early childhood. And all throughout this time, I was still very into music. So the music thing was like never going away. Was the music something that was natural or was it something you were introduced to at the church group? No, no, I was I was into it. That's the reason why I started going to the Ingasso Mission because they had a hip hop program. My mother and my father were both rappers. They're the first rappers in Seattle, first group, Emerald Street Boys and Emerald Street Girls. So I, I had it honest, you know, from, from the time I was born. All my, my grandfather on my mother's side and also on my father's side, all of my own, everybody was world-class musicians. Even after my mother split with my, my biological father and, and uh, my stepfather, who's my dad, he raised me. Even him and she, his uncles also, too, and his grandfather, two world-class musicians, played with Quincy Jones and Ray Charles and things like that. So it was a very, very, like, you know, very serious siblings. My biggest passion always, even as a kid, was music. I loved music. I loved music. I loved to entertain. If there was a camera, I jumped in front of it. You know, a lot of charisma. I just kind of like kept everybody entertained all the time. That was just sort of my personality as a kid. Was it always hip hop or were there other genres that you you enjoyed? R&B, I sing also. So I used to sing, I mean, at least until I was seven, eight years old, nobody could have told me I wasn't Michael Jackson. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have believed them. I had a mean moonwalk also. So I just, you know, I loved music of, of any form. Now, obviously, because of my upbringing, I was exposed to much more R&B, hip-hop. And as I got older, you know, 
on my own. I mean, I think even just like right before venturing into Judaism, and then that, I developed a taste for classical music. And then I started to, I mean, I was listening to Black Keys. Um, I love those guys. I was like, I started to get into more different things. Michael Buble, I got into even. I was like, you know, starting to venture out a little bit and listen to, to different things. Well, it, it must have been confusing for you as a young person, you know, sort of vacillating from this world of, of drug use, as you said, to Islam, to Christianity. What was going on? What was, what was that like and that experience of sort of jumping around? I think, you know, like the Islam thing was, was impactful because my grandfather, you know, and, I, and it, took, it gave us opportunity to bond and get closer to him. But apart from him, it really didn't last, you know. I would tell people I was Muslim because my grandfather told me that, you know, whenever he would call me, he ended up in prison. He called me from prison, salam alaikum, salam, you know. We would go back and forth and talk a little bit, but I wasn't really so as involved. It wasn't until when I was 13, just before I went to that camp, you know, in my 13, yeah, I had an uncle who was also Muslim, so I started to get serious also. I wanted to, like, go to mosque, and I wanted to start getting more serious and because I really wanted to find God. I was, like, on this search. So when I ended up going to this, uh, to this Christian camp, the Nyingasa mission, it was very, very impactful for me because like then for the first time, like, you know, I was a little bit more in tune with the idea that I wanted to know who God was. Um, also too there, it was very, very strong. They had a lot of answers for the questions that they ask you, you know what I mean? Like what's going to be with your afterlife and those type of things. So it was very intense. Now, at least for that, I could say that I was like really good. I really got strong in Christianity. Very much so. Like, I became a junior missionary. I was very involved in, like, you know, leading Bible study groups. I was a part of an elite Bible study group. I was doing uh, every summer. I work as a youth counselor. I had almost half my high school going to this place. And I tell you, wow. like, very, very, very active. I became the poster child for the Union Gospel Mission. I was on billboards. They put me <laughs> in a lot of the magazines there um, for the public, uh, for the Catholic schools. They wrote up my story. I became like the poster child of what to be kind of uh, kind of thing. And the music was a part of that? I was just like making very clean, conscious hip hop to some degree during this era. Um, as things progressed in my high school years, and I started receiving calls from this A&R, talent scout at Virgin Records. And what was big in hip hop at that time was a guy by the name of 50 Cent. Yep. And so he told me, you know, you know, they just kind of wanted to hear a rougher you know, rendition, the same thing I'm doing, but just kind of like, you know, maybe if I get peppered in, a few words, curse words, something to make the sound a little bit more hard or more aggressive. And I was like, you know, I can't go against my values. I'm a Christian, blah, 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 blah. I can't go against it. And like, you know, they sent them like a proposal of a deal. It wasn't a deal, but like a proposal, like what they, what deals are running at and type of things like that. And it had half a million dollars on it. And I was just like, okay. You know, trading the values for half a million. Yeah, I changed in my values for half a million. I was young. I was 16, 17 years old. Yeah, it, it went in. And I tried to do it slowly. But the thing is, is as that happened, a lot of the guys that I stopped hanging around with and some of the more whatever uh, that I wasn't so involved with at the time started to come into my life even more and more and more. And so I found myself, you know, back in circles that was very similar to the way I grew up. And, you know, it just sort of led me down a darker path. Wow. So at that point in time, when you're around 17 or so, you would say you started shifting away from the church and from the ministry and, and towards a sort of a rougher crowd, more of the, right. the, the edgy musical scene? Right, right. Very much so. And, you know, by the time I was 19, full fruition, I 
where I was in the studio one day with a good friend of mine. And I, I used to pull on nighters in the studio. That was like my thing it was like always about working on my craft and being in the studio. Like I really, I was, I was, I was very, very serious about it. So I would spend all night in the studio, whatever. And I had already planned that I was going to do it one night. And I see my mother, she was falling over a lot, like, you know, dozing off and type of thing. She was addicted to narcotics. So uh, whatever, I was used to it to some degree. But on one particular night, it was just a lot more extra than it was on other nights. And I remember at the time I was talking to my girlfriend on the phone, who's now my wife. I've been with my wife since I was 17 years old. Wow. So I'm talking to her. And I, t- I said to her, I said, you know, I feel like one day my mother's not going to wake up. And that morning, she didn't wake up. Goodness. Very devastating. It was like the pain was like, I wouldn't have wished it on my worst enemy, the pain that I had. I, mean, I remember it, you know, like it was yesterday. And so it, w- it was very, very tough for me because, you know, I didn't feel like such a tough guy or anything like that after that. And I had an aunt who, you know, she decided that she wanted to help out my music career after my mother, my mother passed away. And so she uh, flew me to New York and because I, I asked for tickets to New York because I had this deal on the table uh, from Virgin, a possible deal, whatever. And I said, if I can go get other record labels interested in me, um, then it'd be better. So I went to New York, me, uh, my manager at the time was a guy by the name of Ricardo Frazier. He also manages to mix a lot and whatever. People, I went, I ended up going to meet with some shady records, Eminem record label. I went to Atlantic. And I went to Dame Dash Music Group. This is right after Jay-Z and Dame Dash split uh, Rockefeller. And I got nothing going, you know. There was one thing, DJ Clark Kent, who found both Biggie Smalls and Notorious B.I.G. So DDMG, he wanted to sign me. And um, I told him I'm willing to do this. I was willing to put everything on the line. And the next day, Dame Dash uh, decided he didn't want to do the deal. So I came back to Seattle, no deal, no nothing. Virgin wasn't even an option anymore after a few weeks. And then uh, we just were left to put it out independently, and we did. And it made a big splash in the local scenes and it was all the local papers and all the other stuff. And then it got spread more, spread more. And, you know, with success also to the people who are not as excited as you are about it. And so there was another guy who disrespected me in a song. And uh, I remember receiving the song. I was in the studio getting ready to write a reply back, you know, because that was a thing back then. Everybody wanted to go after whoever was making a name for themselves. If I could just, if they could say something, maybe to give them more PR, more promotion type of thing. And so um, after he, he did that, I was in the studio getting ready to make a reply. My friends were like, just like, it's going to beat him up and then he won't make any more songs. It's like, you know. So I decided to go with him. And we went and found the guy at a nightclub. And then we got into a bra. And, we thought that was it. I later on received a call from a friend who said that the police were looking for me. And I thought, you know, for what reason? And they said that, you know, I had a gun and I was shooting and blah, blah, blah. So I heard nothing from this. I didn't even have a gun on me. So I know I didn't, it wasn't me at all. So I remember leaving uh, out of the doors and I, I ran, was on my way to my car. And I seen the police lights, you know, flipping off the building. They were uh, off the building reflect. So I started walking towards them. They weren't there for me. So I started walking towards them. And I seen it was a really good friend of mine who decided that he would go up and try to take the other guy's life. And he was a horrible shot. He missed. He shot everything except for the guy. And so the police took him. He ended up in custody. And so I was left with a dilemma because it looked like I sent him, like I sent him to go kill him. And so because of that... I had to prepare myself also too. So in my mind, I'm thinking if I don't go kill these guys, they're going to come after me and try to finish the whole situation. So 
Then I started crying, and all of a sudden, I became very religious again. All of a sudden, I started praying and talking to God. And, and uh, after that situation, I got a phone call from the guy three days later, and we uh, there was an opportunity. This was this was a miracle for me because nobody ever really calls to ask you if you're trying to kill him or not. You know, so I was on the phone with the guy, and I was able to you know put aside my pride and did the situation. And after that, you know, I just, I kept praying and I kept searching and I kept praying. And that was like the beginning of being on my road to Judaism. So who called you? The guy who you were targeting? You know, the other guy who was shot at, in my honor and in my defense, that guy that was shot at, he, he called me, the other rapper. Just, you know, to settle the score? Yeah, basically. He wanted to know also to himself, you know, how much on guard he should be. After all, he should think that, you know, his life could be on the line. He just got shot at, right? Right. To me, I just already knew what to expect. I knew how the streets work, so I knew that they were going to come after me. Even if my friend was in custody, because he did end up in custody, he ended up going to prison after that. But for me, I ended up myself having to think, like, you know, I already know how this works. They're going to come after me because everybody knew I shine because this guy. They knew this was my guy. Everybody knew, like everybody in the city knew that me and him were together. So... I assumed already that they were going to come after me. So I was thought I had to prepare myself, but Bukashim, God made it a different way that they called me instead. That's pretty amazing that the guy would try to settle it, you know, sort of diplomatically, and that you were I also... Mean, it wasn't like, so diplomatic on the phone, I'll be honest. It, wasn't so, <laughs> it was very, very aggressive and very, very like, which was very hard for me also too, because even though I was praying and as bad as I didn't want the situation, it was still hard for me to take that role to be more lax and like to dead my pride in order to, to make this, you're just raised with a lot of pride and a lot of ego and different things like that, that even if you really don't want to put yourself in such a situation where it could be your life at stake, you do it because of the pride. And I, that's what I'm saying. I said Siata Dishmai at the time to put aside my pride because it was very unlike me anyway. Even with all the intensity of the situation and being afraid to be for my life, it still took a lot for me to put aside my pride on the phone. So at this point in time, you've got an independent record label going. You're gaining some popularity uh, in the local scene and beyond. You went through this traumatic, really life or death kind of encounter, kind of a crossroads for you. Where did you go from there? So after that, I went to my living room. I didn't go nowhere else. And I kept praying. And uh, day after day, I was seeking and searching. And I just... I just randomly, I'm telling you, it just literally came from within that I started to have questions. I just started to have questions on, on, on Christianity and certain things. And I, what I did was I dug up Christianity from its root, you know what I mean? And that's how I discovered Judaism. It was completely that way because I already knew about Islam because of my grandfather. And, and I started searching again when I was 13 again, right before I had that experience at the camp. And then when I had the opportunity, like I said, on my own to search, it was sort of, I bought a Quran also too. I wasn't just sticking with Christianity and then started going to Judaism. I bought a Quran also too, because I wanted to really find the truth. to give myself at least a fair chance. I didn't go outside the Abrahamic religions because it was never even a thought for me. It was like never, it wasn't on my, it wasn't on my radar, it wasn't in my, but I at least wanted to see what, what the truth was. And so I started ordering books and I would, like I said, dig up Christianity from its root. And I was maybe seven, eight hours every day. I was. This is what I was doing with my life, you know, just trying to find the truth. And in between this, like, I started to find so much information out. The biggest thing that hit me first that kind of, like, gave Giloy to the thing so much was, like, the, the Christian holidays. And when I found out, you know, that they were pagan, and not only that, they didn't even have anything to do with the, with the Christian texts. 
even, you know what I mean? So I started to dig from that standpoint, it started to sort of reveal all those things. So from there, I started investigating. And in both stories, the Jewish people are there, you know what I'm saying? Or Sinai is there, the whole, everything. So it started to make me think, and I and I thought, I grew up also too in the Jewish neighborhood, Seward Park in Seattle, Washington. Oh, wow. Did you know so Jews growing up? No, I didn't know anybody. I did. The people that I did know, they went to my elementary school. Um, they weren't religious, so I did know Jewish people growing up. And they were in the neighborhood, but they weren't participating. I don't know if they ever went to shul, if they didn't go to shul, but uh, I did know them. I actually was a Jewish lady that used to pick me up, take me to school in the morning um, on, on late days. On late days, she would, she would come pick me up, take me to school, whatever. Very, very sweet lady. But I didn't have any connection at all with the, with the I used to walk through a shul to go to school. That was it. But then on Saturdays, I would see everybody, you know, making a mass movement up, up to the shul. But right. There, connection. there was no connection. But I started to think about that. I started to think, like, you know, what do Jews believe? You know, what do they believe about the Messiah? What does the, you know? So for whatever reason, the Shem allowed for my heart to be open at the time. And I, and, I, and I really, really did due diligence and searching. Incredible. So at that point in time, did you start to meet any, you know, live Jewish people, you know, later on as you started exploring, I mean, you were just reading books in your, in your living room. Where did it sort of progress? Obviously it must've taken a, a leap forward in some way. Right. As I continued searching, the first place I landed in was Messianic Judaism because it was like the obvious place to go, right? Like you can still believe in JC and yeah. you start to go towards the truth and they don't keep Christmas, but they keep, you know, all the, all the other Chagim and different things like that. And it made sense. So we were there in, in a messianic circle for about two years. I'm still with my girlfriend. And what, what kind of journey was she on? Was she with you? She was with me on the journey, yeah. Um, in the beginning, no. When I first started getting into all the books and everything like that, I remember I sat my wife down to tell her, you know, like all the stuff I've been learning. And I made sure I sat on the far enough couch just in case anything went flying across the room. <laughs> she grew up very, very Christian, very, very like Southern Baptist. My wife's originally from Louisiana. And Southern Baptist, like Pentecostal, yeah. very like serious business. So I knew that it was going to be information for her, you know. So I talked to her. She was not very happy about it. She wanted a divorce even. She was like, you know, we got married already. We were only maybe a year married. I was 20 years old when all this started happening. And I'm searching and other stuff. And I, we got married. I was also 20. And so we were talking and, and she just like, no way, no way, no way, no way. You're crazy. You're crazy. Blah, blah, blah. And then, so after some time, I think she like started reviewing and going, I took very thorough notes of everything I was learning and whatever, where I placed it. And she came to me and she said, I feel like I've been lied to my whole entire life. So we felt like we we're on an island. We didn't know what to do. We ended up in the Messianic world for, for two years, like I told you. And, and there, it was one of those things where what happened naturally, even the whole entire belief in, in JC and uh, whatever, that whole thing just kind of waned over time as I started to go more into Judaism itself. And I started thinking text. And it was just sort of like, for me, that authenticity that I was after when I started questioning God and questioning all those things was starting to lead me towards Judaism. Because what I wanted was like when I read the Bible, I remember I told God, like, after all the stuff was written, it's like, I don't want any outside influence. I said, God, I just want to start over. I'm going to read the Bible from cover to cover. 
And I only want to look for your character. I want to know what you love, what you hate, what you reward, what you, what you punish. I wanted to know. I want to know you. So that was the way I went. And I read all of that. I went in uh, twice, like a book, you know. And I was just searching. And I think the most impactful thing for me, you know what I mean, which as far as Judaism is like when I started to realize that all the different pasukim that are inside the Navi, they talk about, you know, the, the words of Manucha that Hashem gives over to the Jewish people and comforting and, and all the promises that he gives. Like it started to make me feel like, wow, I'm outside of this. It's not, it's not talking about the church. It's like for the first time I'm able to have, oh, oh, it's talking about the Jewish people. It's not talking about them. So I started to feel a little bit like left out and a little, a little like, you know what I mean? Like Hashem, you know, God, what about me, you know? So I think that's what like created much more opening in my heart to start thinking about thinking the guys and converting and things like that. So it was still very, very difficult. The most impactful thing that happened among this journey was they had a major Messianic conference. This was like at the end of the two years and I was on the brink of like completely leaving. By this time I was already visiting Chabad on the, on the east side. Rabbi Farkash, and I would go to him, you know, just, you know, once a week, me and my brother-in-law would, and I ended up going for a meeting before they had this major conference and all these places were going to come to Seattle from LA, New York, wherever it was that they were messing, they were coming to Seattle for this conference, and one of the things they told us in prepping for this conference was, whatever you do, don't talk to the Orthodox rabbis that are in the lobby, don't say hi, don't say Shabbat Shalom, don't say, you know, this type of thing. They didn't want us to make any interaction because they only want to pull you away from JC and blah, blah, blah. So we decided, me and my brother-in-law at the time, was all my best friend. Uh, we decided that we would go to the to the conference there, yeah, but instead of going in, we hang out with the rabbis. So we hung out <laughs> with the, on the rabbis, there was Michael Skoback of uh, Jews for Judaism in uh, Toronto. So I was able to bounce questions off about these situations, and after that, I never went back to the place. What was going on with your music during this tumultuous period? So very interesting because I just this was right around 2009 when this happened. Um, I just released my last record. The uh, name of the record was Aliyah, actually. Interesting. So I put out that record with the with the idea was, and it's an amazing thing what Hashem does because I wasn't even Jewish, but I told my business partner at the time, he said, this is going to be my last album, and I don't want any money from it or anything like that. You know what I mean? Just I don't want to perform on the Shabbat. The Shabbat and Yamin told me, this is it. This is what I want. So they agreed, whatever, they take me personally. And that, the album literally blew up internationally and whatever. And I was on MTV. The, the first single was on MTV. All this was happening during this time of my, my Messianic period going into Judaism at the very end. And so... I found myself, uh, and, and that year, even also too, I gave up, you know, the, the buzzer. I got, I was working the job, and I got four raises in one year with this job. So I wasn't, I wasn't hurting at the fact that I didn't take anything from the record either. What job so, were you working? So I was working in property management. It was a good gig, but ultimately, you know, you have to find out, you know, it, it wasn't for me. I was supposed to be lighting up the world with music and songs. It was very, very, the, the people there were very nice, very respectful, things like that, so very awesome. So at that point, I guess you continued through Chabad towards a conversion. You were, you were kind of set on really going all the way. Right. It wasn't through Chabad by this time. My biggest hang up after this, you know, after meeting Rabbi Skobach and all other stuff, was like we did want to convert. After, after I decided that I wanted to convert all this stuff, I realized I hadn't met any black Jews, you know? Yep. 
And I, remember I was checking out the groceries one day and um, I was on the self thing, you know, self checkout. And then all of a sudden I heard Shabbat Shalom, brother, you know, like everything from behind. Turn around, it was a black Jew. And his name is Yaakov Lennon. We actually became a good friend of ours. And he invited us for Shabbos back into a park in the neighborhood I grew up. So I was like a block away from the house I grew up. And after him, another person invited us and another person invited us. But you know, we started to have friends inside the, inside the Orthodox community. And my wife came to me and said, you know what, I'm going for it. I'm on an Orthodox conversion. You know, basically, type of thing. you're coming or you're not. Whatever. And so we ended up into the community. We were there for two and a half years. It was me, my wife, my sister-in-law, and my sister-in-law was married to my best friend from kindergarten. So it was all four of us. We moved in. The and community. they also converted? They also converted the same day, double wedding. No way. Unbelievable. What a party. That's incredible. So fast forwarding a little bit, I believe that you moved, speaking of your last album as a, as a messianic, Aliyah, I think you yourself ultimately made Aliyah, is that correct? Yeah, 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 we did. We did, actually. Um, two years ago, me, my wife, and also my brother and sister-in-law, we all moved to Israel, to Yerushalayim, us and all our families. Incredible. Is your brother-in-law, sister, are they also into music? Yeah, so that, that was the whole story. There's my, my brother-in-law, my best friend since kindergarten, Yosef Brown. He actually wrote my biggest hits, Fly Away, Million Years, and stuff like that. And he also does production. So we do production together, and we write the songs together. So it's very much so like a, um, it's a team. It's a team. And we were doing this back in the day. Before we came into Yiddish, we produced songs for The Game and The Young Buck from June and 50 Cent's cover. And, and so we were very, we've been doing this for a long time together. So the fact that we were able to like, you know, get into Yiddish guy together, everything. So it's amazing because the camaraderie that we have, we're able to take it from being in that world and then being able to be in this world. It's a very huge thing to be able to do that with the same person. Yeah, I'd say that that's quite unique. I mean, many people go on their own journey, but usually it's a solo venture um, right. to bring your closest compatriot from a previous iteration of your life into and through that whole journey with you, I think is quite unique. So Nisim, bring us up to date with what's going on today. First of all, I'm really curious. You mentioned, you know, not having met other African-American Jews. Was that an obstacle as you, as you really got into the community and, or as you moved to Israel? I guess there's probably a lot more in Israel with the Ethiopian Jewry that's there. What's been that experience like? And what are you up to now? That's a very good question. So the truth is, is that it's actually, it's interesting because the African-American thing, it was something in my head, but I mean, to some degree, it was still like a, a little bit of a, like a mental block, but I don't think it stopped me inside. My heart was like burning on fire to come closer to Shim and, and to join Claudia Sosa. I don't think it would have really been a hindrance. I didn't experience myself any like racism or anything like that, prejudice that I didn't feel at least, you know. No, nothing that I would have contributed to being because of color of my skin. Maybe some things people are like, you know, a little leery about Gary or people that are in the process because they don't really know and whatever. They don't really know how people feel towards Jewish people, you know, right. those type of things. But I never feel like I experienced that even when I moved here to Israel. That's heartening to hear and encouraging to hear. What about any backlash from your family of origin? Has, as you know, your grandfather, your uncle, the people that were Muslim, the, the church that you were involved with, did right. they reject you, all of those different people, or have they continued to embrace you? I don't think so. I mean, I think for my family in the beginning, it was very hard. They're like, you know, maybe you're joining a cult, especially my wife's family. It was like, 
you know, at the beginning, especially in the Messianic era, because everything's still very undefined at that point. And then by the time we came into Yiddishkeit and like my blood and my family that does follow, they definitely are proud of me. They're proud of the, the steps and whatever I've been able to, to do in the world that they're watching me from afar. Um, there's not a constant relationship there to where we're always in constant communication. So to know, you know, how everybody feels on a daily basis, I don't know. But so right. this is not so much of a relationship there. And then we, like I said, we sort of just deal with the situation from a distance to some, some degree. Right. And just bring us sort of to a full circle over here in terms of musically. What was that transition like? Was it difficult as you were becoming Jewish and so forth? Was it difficult to transition your music into a a new Jewish sort of setting or I guess sort of genre in a sense? How did that translate? Were there any major breakthroughs? And obviously you're still practicing. That's your your career still today. So of course it seems like it was successful. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I think for me, I think it's important, and I, and I say this as a clown, really, for, for anybody who has a gift or talent, especially in entertainment, when you come into Judaism, there needs to be a time where you're into it, you're not involved, really. Like, and that's what I did after I was out, yeah, whatever. I was finished with music for two years. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't rapping, I wasn't, uh, well, I thought I was done for the rest of my life. I, I wasn't, I wasn't interested. It was hard for me because my heart was burning for a shame and I wanted to come closer and it's a, but those the two years or whatever, two years, two and a half years that I was able to get away from it was very, very important for me in the fact that it was a, I was able to, to some degree become nullified to a new entire way of thinking, a new culture, and to learning and to, to being able to absorb. I was able to do that without holding on to what a lot of people do, I say, is like, you know, when you could come to Judaism and you could come to, to history, it can be very intimidating because there's a lot of things you don't know. So much information to acquire. A person feels like, and sometimes you feel like in a little amount of time, you know, especially if you have to go through a conversion. I have to acquire so much information and things like that. And I see what happens a lot of times. Usually some, to some degree, a backlash of like this prideful feeling of like holding on to the things that I do know because I'm very comfortable with the things that I do know. And because I do know that and everybody else doesn't know that, so I gravitate towards that. And it may end up sometimes in having very weird and warped hashkafas, but really unsettled inside because they still held on to a lot of the things that they had before because it was their comfort zone. You know, like for instance, you know, I, I know some people who knew a lot about the Bible or, or, the, or the Tanakh and different things like that, where Tanakh is not really studied in the yeshiva system. And so because you, you knew that, you're like, hold on to that. Now, it's intimidating because you can't go through a Gemara. You know, not to learn Gemara or whatever. But instead of just building yourself, you, know, you argue with everybody how it's more important to learn Tanakh. And I know this and I know that, you know. So people find themselves battling all these different types of things and it comes off as very weird and end up with all different types of things. So for me, I think it was very important for me to like, I don't know nothing, you know, I'm starting over completely and, and I'm not holding on to music as it could be a distraction to sort of pull me away from my learning and trying to enter that place. So that's what I did. I, I got rid of it and I thought I was done for good. And then, you know, around 2012, into 2012, Hashem said differently. I had a lot of people telling me that. I had a miraculous story where I told the Shim, you know, after my son was sick, you know, I had a broken microphone that if he allows it to work, then I'll take it as a siman that I'm supposed to return to music. That happened. I went to Rebellion, who I talked to, who I was for sure going to tell me no. And they didn't tell me no. They told me that, you know, it seemed like this is what it should once for me. And so I got back into music. And the transition wasn't hard because to some degree, it's just what's inside, you know. If, you know, back then it was about money, cars, and other shields. That's what's going to come out because it's what's inside the person. 
Naturally, if a person sat down to me in the first five minutes, we're talking about a shim, some, some type of chizik is going to come out of my mouth. So now that's what I rap about. So I know you had a major hit with the song Hashem Melech and a video. Has, has that been kind of the biggest, highest profile uh, hit so far? Yeah, for sure. Definitely by, by far. It made a, made a very, very big splash. wasn't so sure that it was going to to because the song was out already. So I got a call from a friend who asked me, and it was very interesting because I was also there again, kind of thinking about stepping away from music again. Even, you know, like not on the same scale, but sort of like just backing away, not, not like I did before, but I was just really like at a place where I just want to learn my heart, like I said, was burning on fire for shame, and I wanted to focus on my devotions and, and my learning and, and really intensely to achieve, achieve levels in my dragons, not afraid of it, like I was in a place. And when I got that call from a good friend of mine who, who asked me, Elon Cohen, he called me and said, do you want to do a remix of Shemalak? You heard of it? I said, yeah. He said, hold on, I'll call you back. He called God Elbaz, God Elbaz said, yeah. So we, we did the song, Long Distance. I recorded in Seattle, you recorded in Tel Aviv. And then um, we discussed it and whatever. We ended up shooting the video for the song. And I remember I came back. I went to go shoot that video. I didn't have a dime in my pocket. I had a single dime, and I have nothing to my name. I was two months behind on my rent. I didn't know where my next I was. I was working for Colel at that time. Um, obviously, I was making a wage, but it wasn't enough for me to really live on. I wasn't realistic. And I ended up, I came back after shooting the video. And I remember when I was there, and I did the third verse to Shemalaf, the wake up my friend, wake up on that, that part. And I was in the middle of the street. There's so much fire running through my body when I was recording, when they were recording me. And I, I never felt so like, you know, wow, this is what I'm supposed to be doing type of thing. You know, I was like, I'm fine. I came back and I told my wife, I'm ready to do music. This is it. This is it. And I think this is this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, and she was like, no, I think you're supposed to be getting a job, you know. <laughs> I'm like, okay. So I remember like internally battling, like feeling like, wow, this is like, I felt it very strongly. And so I remember talking to my wife about it and telling her I'm really, really inside. One thing I did, like I, I left everything. I quit the cold job, everything. And I was behind by this time, three months. I didn't know where my next dollar, anything was going to come from. Thank God we had like, you know, public help from like food stamps and stuff like that. That was the only way to survive because it's very, very tough. And so I started going out, talking to the shim. I was out. Every day, six hours, every day. I was doing for 22 days, talking to Hashem, crying, just on, on my purpose. Even much more so about my situation with it. I promised from my heart. I wasn't talking to Shim's head off about money or helping me out. I was talking to him about being able to affect bias well, these things I was seeing inside my heart and dreams, everything. Everything was very wise, very roofly timed right there. And on day 17, a Shemalek came out. I got a call from God Elbaz. He said, Achi, we made a hit. It was like huge. It exploded. And I didn't have internet. I, was, I didn't know what was going on so much with the, the song. And after that, I started getting calls from all over the world to come and give people chizik. And Bokashim, I've been on the road ever since. <laughs> Unbelievable. What's, uh, what's the next chapter for you, Nisim? Uh, where are you going from here? Next chapter is very, very interesting. I, I, you know, I haven't really opened it yet. Right now, I'm in the middle of writing my book. It's an autobiography called Miracles in Darkness. When's that coming out? Uh, when it's finished. <laughs> 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 I mean, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I don't have a date for it. But Book Hashem, I've been very, like, active working on it every day. So it's, like, sort of become my, my heart right now to get this book finished. I mean, I'm very young, so I'm only 31, which is hard for me to say. I mean, since I got past 30, it's been hard for me to say my age. Anyway, 
I want to be able to try to convey and give over some of what I was feeling throughout the process. You know, I think one of the songs that I have that conveyed that the most was a million years. So it's like sort of trying to capture this, to some degree, this love affair that I had with Hashem that brought me into Yiddishkeit. So I'm really trying to capture that in this book. So it's become so, somewhat of a task because to say these things and to see somebody's emotions and everything sometimes it's easier to convey the, the emotion of what passion you had. But to write it is, is another thing. So I'm writing that book and that's like my main thing right now. And then we're going to start recording here very soon on the, on the new project. Nissan Black, an incredible story like we started with. Nissan Miracles, hard to imagine all you've been through in just, you, you might think it's a lot, but 31 years, not that much. You certainly experienced quite a lot in that time and uh, very excited to see what happens in the next 31 and beyond and all the contributions you'll make musically and otherwise to the Jewish people. Thank you very much, Nissan Black. Thank you, thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.